0: So I want to start today by honoring our very sick pastor, Steve, by using his opening phrase, which everyone should know. I would invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 10, and we're going to be looking at verses 32 through 52. This is a text that God has really been laying on my heart over the past few months. It's actually an opportunity I had a couple of weeks ago when I led the youth group up to Canada. We got there and... Uh, Thursday before the Sunday, I was asked if I would fill in for the pastor of the church up there who had a family emergency and wasn't able to preach. So they asked me to preach, and this is a text that God laid on my heart, and I had three days to prepare a sermon. I preached in jeans and sneakers, and so when I got back and found out how sick Steve became, and Jeff asked me if I would be prepared to preach, and it wasn't until about three days ago that that was confirmed. And so now I have about a full week's preparation between the two three-day sections, and I'm excited. This is a really amazing text, a really great story. And so if you were on that youth group trip with me, this is your second chance to really hear this. So in case you were a little sleepy last time, you get to hear it again. So let's, uh, let's pray together as we approach this text. Father, thank you so much for your love for us that it is not conditional. There's nothing we could do when we are in Christ that could separate us from your love. There's no way to earn more of your love. There's no way to lose it once we are in Christ because he is our perfect righteousness. I thank you that when we stand before the Father, you see him in his glory and you welcome us into your eternal kingdom. I thank you, Lord, that because of what you've done it transforms the way we think, the way we obey. You, Lord, it's not a burden anymore but our sin starts to taste less and less good, and you start to taste better. I thank you, Lord, that you don't just forgive our sins from when we first trust you, but for the rest of our lives, and that we could approach you in worship today not because of anything we've done, because of what you've done. And, Lord, as we look at your text, let it come alive to us because of your spirit that dwells in us and allow us to not only listen to it and appreciate it, but to let it affect our lives in the way we treat others and the way we love you. I pray this in your name, amen. There is a popular audio clip out there on YouTube. It's it's called um, Deer Crossing Sign. And in this audio clip, a woman calls in to a, a local radio station somewhere up in Minnesota, and she wants to voice her concern about something. And so, so they're all ears, they say, so, so what's going on? She said, well, here's my issue. In the last few years, I've had three separate car accidents, all on the highway, all involving deer. And they say, okay. And she says, my problem is, is that every time I had one of these accidents involving deer, it was right shortly after I saw a deer crossing sign. And, and her beef was, she said, how could the Department of Transportation be so irresponsible to put these deer-crossing signs in these high-traffic areas. <laughs> why in the world would we encourage these deer to cross in areas where they're so likely to be struck by oncoming traffic? <laughs> Dead serious. You could hear the radio announcers holding in their laughs. And she just goes on, she goes, I don't know why they don't think about putting these in safer areas. Like, I think a school crossing would be a good idea. But let's, let's encourage these deer to cross in the school crossings where they're not going to be struck. And, and she, she continues, she said, I, I just don't think they should be there. And they say, you know that these signs aren't telling the deer where it's safe to cross, they're just alerting drivers that it's like a high population. And she goes, no, 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 they could direct the deer population wherever they want. She continues on, I think a school crossing would be a good idea. And they, they, after trying once again to to correct her, they say, "All right, well, we'll get the word out there. We'll try and help you. She was dead serious. Obviously very embarrassing. She ended up calling back in after someone explained to her about the deer crossing signs and realized how embarrassing that was, how dumb she sounded. She was having issues with people putting deer crossing signs in her yard after that. But there's nothing that makes a person want to embarrass themselves that bad. It only happens because she was obviously completely confused. She grew up in a small town. No one ever explained to her. She just assumed it was like a a, a pedestrian crossing. Hey, this is where we cross. Well, something very similar is going on here in Mark. The disciples are confused. They're following Jesus ever since he called them, but they have no idea what he's going to do. He explains to them things. He teaches them. But they still think he's going to do something opposite of what he's really going to do. They embarrass themselves themselves, several times because they don't understand, just like this woman. So why did I choose this title? Why did I choose who is the gospel for? Well, that's really what Mark's main aim is in his narrative. Mark is wanting his audience to understand who the gospel is for and what it is. What is the gospel? Mark writes his narrative like a quick action story. I was looking at this text, and there's like six sentences that begin with, and. He has, he has no idea of stopping a thought. He just keeps it going. It, and this, his story includes a lot of miracles with women, children, and unordinary people. He has teachings that he records, encounters with the religious leaders, with the Pharisees. And stopping reading Mark, when you're reading it, is like stopping an action movie. It's not meant to be done. Mark wrote this in a way that we need to read it all in one sitting because it is a story that he wants you to read from beginning to end. It's like when when I want to watch Lord of the Rings and I get through the first one, it's impossible not to just start the second one right after that. That's what Mark is. It's just an action story. And Mark has a purpose as he's writing to this church that was thought to be in Rome. And this church probably is also struggling to understand who Jesus is and exactly what he came to do. This letter that Mark is writing is meant to bring clarity to them as they're struggling as they're facing persecution from the Romans for their faith and probably a lot of disunity because you had two totally different people groups coming together in the church, the Jews and the Gentiles. And so Mark is trying to show them, hey, this is what it's all about. This is who the gospel is for. So the context of our story is Jesus just finished his ministry outside of Jerusalem. He had traveled all around outside of Jerusalem and the religious leaders up until this point in Jerusalem have tried to put him to death several times. And so far, Jesus, with his disciples, has predicted his death and resurrection twice. After he tells them the first time, hey, I'm going to die, I'm going to be handed over, crucified, and rise again, Peter goes, no, you're not. He rebukes, he rebukes Jesus for it. And Jesus says, no, get behind me, Satan. And the second time he says, hey, I'm going I'm to die and rise again, they start saying, hey, who do you think the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is? They have these two ridiculous things after, right after Jesus does it. And what we're going to look at here is what happens after the third time he predicts it. And something to really look at here, something Matt mentioned, is Mark is going to show a really big contrast in this text between the disciples and the blind man. Mark is all about contrast all throughout his narrative, and that's what we're going to look at here today. And so I thought it would be appropriate, especially since we have kids this Sunday, I want to tell this story before we read it together. I want to, I want to tell it to you. Because not, a, not just kids, but adults, when we hear it, we experience it in a different way. We understand it in a different way, and we can see how it all fits together. So, so I want you to hear a story from God's Word. With all that Jesus was teaching and doing, the religious leaders tried to put him to death several times, but they were unable to. So Jesus and his followers were on their way back into Jerusalem, where these religious leaders were, and his followers were afraid because Jesus had just told them for the third time that he was going to die by the, because of these people. But that he would rise three days later. So James and John, two of his followers, came up to Jesus and said, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we're about to ask. And Jesus said, and what do you want me to do for you? They said, let us sit at your right side and your left side in your kingdom. Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink or be baptized the way I'm going to be baptized? Yes, we are, they said. So Jesus says, you will. You will drink the same cup that I'm gonna drink and you're gonna experience the same baptism, but to sit on each side of me is not my choice, but it's already been decided. When the other followers heard this, they got angry at James and John. So Jesus called them over and he said to them, you know when someone's a leader, They show it by bossing around those who are underneath them. But that's not how it should be with you. If you want to be a leader, if you want to be great, you need to become a servant or even a slave of others. Because even I didn't come to be served, but to serve others and give my life for many people. Just after that, Jesus and his followers were walking through Jericho. And as they were leaving Jericho, there was a blind beggar sitting on the side of the road. And when this blind man found out that Jesus was walking by, he began to call out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But the followers told him, shh, quiet, quiet. But that made him yell out even louder. He said, Jesus, have mercy on me. Then Jesus stopped and he said, call that man over. So they went over to the man, the blind man. They said, Jesus is calling you. So he jumped up and he ran over to Jesus. And Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, I want to see. Then go, Jesus said, your faith has given you sight. Immediately the man's eyes were opened, and after that he followed Jesus. This is a story from God's word. So we're going to look at this first section here. This first section where Jesus talks about his mission for his kingdom. So now let's read this first part together. It says, In verse 32, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days he will rise." So Jesus, pretty simple, he's walking with his, his disciples and all these followers. It says that they're amazed as they followed him. Why, why were the disciples amazed? Well, first of all, Jesus is courageously walking ahead of them to the place where the people want to kill him. And they're also amazed because of what Jesus just did. If you look right before this, what happens right before this story is there's some children who come to Jesus. And his disciples rebuke the children. Like, stop bothering Jesus, get away. He says, no. The, the kingdom of heaven is for children like this. But then right after that, this rich man comes up to Jesus and says, hey, like, you know, how, how do I, you know, what's what do I do to get into heaven? He says, follow all these commands. He says, I've done all that. Go and sell all you have. He walked away sad because he had a lot of possessions. And his disciples were amazed because Jesus goes, how hard is it for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven? It's easier for the a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus just raised the bar. First he he tells them it's, it's for children, and then he tells them this guy who's been obedient but has a lot of wealth, it, he can't enter. We see another contrast here. The children bring nothing to the table, and they know it. That rich man thought he did. But Jesus is raising the bar, and they're amazed. How do you get into the kingdom of heaven? So they're going to see this more through the story. And it says, the crowd, wa- the crowd was afraid as they followed him. It's got this picture in this text here of Jesus walking ahead and almost like the whole crowd taking these like little half steps behind him because they're thinking, Jesus, so many people love you. You're doing awesome things. Why are you going to the place where people hate you? These people want to kill you, so they're following. And I, I kind of know the feeling. It's like we were in Canada and we went to a, a place called the quarry. And at the quarry, there's like a, a 10-foot cliff you could jump off into the water a 35 and a 65, and the 35 was pretty, pretty scary jumping off that, but then we walked up to the 65, and when you're stepping up to that edge, it's very similar to this crowd. I was, I was looking over, and if you threw like a rock, it would take three full seconds to hit, hit the water, and that's just terrifying. Don't worry parents, we did not allow your kids to jump off the 65 foot cliff. So this crowd is afraid, because he's heading to his doom. He's heading to these people who want to kill him. And then Jesus tells them for the third time what's going to happen. And he's detailed. Look at this. He says, they will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. After three days, he will rise. I I don't know how it went over their heads, but it did. Luke records that when Jesus told them this, it was withheld from them the meaning. But when we read it, it's like they shouldn't have to guess what he means. Even if it was withheld from them, he just said, I'm going to die this way, but I'm going to rise again. They're confused. They don't don't know what's going on. It's just going to take us into this next section here where we see false greatness in the kingdom. And really, it's also a false kingdom that the disciples have in mind. So let's read this text together in verse 35. It says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those who have, it has been prepared. So James and John, these two followers approach, and we got to think, is this a a, a request or a demand? They say, do for us whatever we're about to ask. Like, is is Jesus their genie? Like, does he have to do whatever they're about to ask? It's almost as bad as starting a conversation like, Jeff, don't take this the wrong way. (laughs) But what's going to happen? You're going to take it the wrong way. This this is kind of how they start this request. Jesus, do for us whatever we're about to ask. But Jesus, it's amazing. He entertains the request. He says, and what do you want me to do for you? They say, allow us to sit. One at your right hand, one at your left hand. Can you guys imagine the conversation leading up to this point, up to this request? It's like, hey, James, come here. I don't know about these other ten, but I'd love to sit with him in his kingdom. What do you think? Should we go up and ask him? I remember one time I was standing near some kids. And they were having this conversation, pretty appalling. The kids wanted to have a sleepover. And the one who wanted to have the other boys sleep over at his house, he said, I know if I ask my dad, he's gonna say no. But this is what you gotta do. Go up to my dad and say that, you really want me to sleep over. And he'll say yes, because he likes you. I was like, okay, there's some of the behind the scenes of what happens with kids. This is kind of what the disciples are doing here. Can you imagine leading up to this crazy request? Let us sit in your right hand and your left hand. Well, what are they thinking about? What is on the disciples' mind as they're asking this question? They're thinking about a kingdom on earth. They're not thinking about heaven. They're thinking about this kingdom on earth. They thought Jesus came to set up this kingdom in Jerusalem. They thought that he was going to drive out all of the Israelites' enemies, set up this amazing kingdom better than Solomon's kingdom So much wealth, happiness, great leadership. He he was it. He was the Messiah who was going to do that. And that's really important to remember for the rest of this conversation. And we know that this is true because in Acts 1-6, after Jesus resurrects, it's all done. What do the disciples come up and say? Are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? It's like, move the deer crossing sign. They, they don't know what's going on. The disciples didn't know what was going on until that sp- the Spirit came and filled them, and they understood why Jesus came. So Jesus they ask this ridiculous question. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup or be baptized this way? And, and they have this super prideful answer because they think they're right. They say, yes, we are. Well, remember, they're thinking about this earthly kingdom, so when they're thinking about cup, what are they thinking about? Well, they're thinking about, well, when Jesus sits down with his important people, his cup is a really important cup. The, per- the, the person who gives him the cup actually tasted it at first to make sure it's not poison. And so this is like a really important cup. And the person on the right and left probably get to share in drinking that cup because they're important too. That's the cup they're thinking about. So they're like, yeah, if we're on your right and your left, of course we get to drink your cup. And then the baptism, what are they thinking about? Well, water baptism. We're, we're baptized by John. Jesus was baptized. We're able to be baptized the way you are. Well, what is Jesus talking about here? He says, yes, you are able. He's not talking about those things. He's talking about the cup of wrath. The cup that Jesus is going to drink is the cup of God's wrath, the cup of wrath against sinners. And the disciples, now they're not going to drink the exact cup that Jesus drinks as he enters into that garden and onto the cross, but the disciples And James is one of the first martyrs, dies for his faith. John is said that he was boiled alive in oil. They experience wrath. And then baptism, Jesus is not talking about water baptism, he's talking about baptism into death. And that's gonna happen with the disciples too. When they're born again through the spirit, their old self is dead. They are going to experience the same baptism. And then we see Jesus' very unlikely response. He says, yes, you will. It's kind of confusing. They say, yeah, we're going to be able to do this. And he says, yes, you will. But we know he's thinking not the way you're thinking about, but you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer for me. But then he says, you, you will do this, but it's not my de- decision. But it's for those who it's been prepared for. The first thing I wanted to notice here is that he doesn't say no. Jesus doesn't say, no, you can't sit at my right or left. He said, it's not my decision, but it's been for those who it's been prepared for. So we have to ask ourselves the question, are there people sitting at Jesus' right and left hand in his kingdom? Let's think about this. Say say we're thinking about the heavenly kingdom, the true kingdom. Who's sitting at Jesus' right and left in his heavenly kingdom? Let me ask this. Jeff Johnson, getting, getting married tomorrow, big day. Who's sitting next to you? Yeah. And what is she? You're what? Your wife, your bride. You're the groom. Well, who is the bride of Christ? His people. We're all sitting next to him. We're not squeezing onto one chair, so didn't think about it that way. But we're all around that, that feast, that marriage supper of the Lamb. We're all there. And God is there. Father, the Son, and the Bride. It's not for a certain person, it's been prepared, it's for those who it's been prepared for, his bride. Let's think about it in an earthly way. If the, if the disciples really wanted to be part of his kingdom on earth, who sat next to him, or who was on his right and left in his, on earth? John 12, 23 uses similar language, he says, now has the hour come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is right before he went into his crucifixion. So. The way that the Son of Man was glorified on earth was through his crucifixion. Well, who do we see on his right hand and his left hand on earth? Criminals. Cross on the left, cross on the right. Jesus entered into his glory by identifying, by hanging there with criminals. That's what he became to receive his kingdom. Do James and John really want to share in his glory that way? I don't think so. So this is this false greatness that comes out in this conversation. And then we're going to go into this next section where we see true greatness in the kingdom. Let's look at verse 31 together. When the ten heard it, they became began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it should, shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant." And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the other disciples get angry, and Jesus uses it as an opportunity to teach them. And before we put ourselves above the disciples who became angry, we're all there too. Kids, how many of you, when you're walking through a store, and your brother or sister say, Hey, Mom, can I get some ice cream? You get angry like, wait, why I? How about we? How about we all get ice cream? And adults, you've been there too. When you overhear your coworker asking your boss for a raise, please don't tell me that you're super happy when that happens. You're like, why not me? I want a raise too. This is is the disciples here, they get angry. And so Jesus calls them over and he says, guys, don't be like a bad leader who dominates others. But if you wanna leave, You have to lead, you have to serve others. If you want to lead, you have to serve others. I don't remember the last time I asked someone, hey, how's work going? They they, they go, oh man, it's great. My boss is a jerk. He makes me do so much work, calls me bad names, never says thank you. He takes credit for work I do. I feel so loved. (laughs) Yeah, I've never heard that before. This is what Jesus is saying. If you want to love, if you want to serve others, as a leader, serve them. Be a slave to them. Do this at work. Do this with your spouse. Do this with your children. Do this with your friends. If you want to be a leader, if you want to be great in my kingdom, serve others. And then he uses this other language. He says, a slave. It's really heavy language. That implies Ownership. That implies that you are owned by that person. You need to become a slave of others. There's a quote out there by a very popular preacher, a prosperity gospel preacher. He says, be around people who celebrate who you are. If people don't appreciate you, you should, le- you should get new friends. You should not be around them. Can you imagine if Jesus applied this advice on the cross? I should be around people who appreciate who I am. I'm coming down. No. And that's not what his followers are called to do, to just be around people who appreciate you. Slave implies you owe them, even if they don't say thank you, even if they don't appreciate. That's what Christ did. He served, he became a slave to us, to ransom us. That's what we need to do for others, and that's hard. But what makes it less hard is, Jesus gives a reason right after this. He says, why should we do this? Well, there's a word for there, which we know means there's a reason. He says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. He says, I came to serve and die for many. So we know now that the heart motivation for serving others is not to gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven or to look like good people, but because Jesus did it for our redemption. That's why we do it, because Jesus did it for us and we know that others will see his mercy through our serving of them. And people desperately need to see Jesus today. There are so many people out there that they're watching with the media and everything else that are horrible examples that don't lead them to see who Jesus is. People need to see Jesus through you. In Colossians, Paul says, I am filling up in my flesh what is lacking for for the sake of Christ's afflictions. What he's saying is not that Christ lacked anything in what he did, but those people in Colossi didn't see him die. So what Paul did is he suffered and served them so they would get to see an example of Jesus so that they could believe in him more and do that for others. That's what we need to do. Be Jesus to others so that they could come to him. Because our natural bend is to not do that. Our natural bend is to make things convenient for ourselves, to serve ourselves. Well, Jesus forgives that, and he changes us to be able to serve others. So he says, if you want importance and position in my kingdom, Lay your life down. Here Jesus is raising the bar even higher to get into that kingdom. Now lastly, we're going to see how the blind man receives entrance into Jesus' kingdom. A blind man enters Jesus' kingdom. So starting in verse 46, they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside, and when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped to talk, stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So his disciples go to Jericho and they're already leaving Jericho when this is happening. This blind man calls out, Son of David, Jesus, have mercy on me. This man is completely hopeless. He's completely dependent. If you're blind, and especially in that day, there's no work for you. You are completely dependent on others to give you money. Others to give you food. This guy is sitting there, we don't know how long, but he's Hopeless. Dependent. He calls out for Jesus. And what's the people's reaction? And we have to ask ourselves, are the disciples included here in this reaction of of telling them to be quiet? And we really see a repeat from earlier with the little children. They make the same mistake. They say, shh, stop. Why? Why do they do that? Why do they tell him to stop calling out? Well, he's lowly. He's undeserving. Why would the Messiah stop for him? Completely against the point. If that's our heart with others today, we miss the point too. If we ever look at a person and think they don't deserve to hear, they don't deserve to come in my house, they don't deserve my love, we miss the point because Jesus came for those people who are a complete mess. But we see here that the discouragement from the people could not stop him because he was so desperate anyway. And this is really what comes out as the first, his first sign of true faith. He calls out again, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. What about the way he calls out shows his understanding of Jesus? He says, son of David. This blind man, despite his position in this world, he believes in the biblical Messiah. Son of David was an indicator that he knew who Jesus was. In 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 16, we see this description of this one who would come after David, and we know it's not just talking about Solomon. It's one who would come who God would establish his kingdom forever, and he would love him like a son and be a father to him. That's the son of David that this blind man's talking about. It's a second sign of faith that he believes in the biblical Messiah. What else does he say that shows us his true faith? He says, Have mercy. Mercy. Now, what is mercy? Kids' mercy, say in your house, your parents have a strict no-lying rule. If you lie, you will get a consequence, whatever that is, lose privileges for the week. Well, you lie, your parents find out. Instead of giving you those consequences, they say, I'm gonna forgive you and not give you these consequences. Hopefully it doesn't happen often, so we need to be consistent as parents, but that's mercy. You deserve to be punished for what you did, but you're not gonna get what you deserve. That's mercy. Adults, many of you have been in this situation as I have before. You are driving a little over the speed limit. You get pulled over, you're going 10 over, you know you deserve it, but the officer says, I'm just gonna give you a warning. What did you deserve? You deserved a ticket. What did he give you? He gave you what you didn't deserve. Or he did not give you what you did deserve. That's mercy, not getting something that we do deserve. The blind man knew that the result of his sin and the sin in the world and the curse made him both blind physically and spiritually. He knew he deserved it. That calling out for mercy implies that he knows I deserve this. I deserve to be blind. I deserve to be sitting here. He knew he needed mercy from Jesus. This is his third sign of true faith. He called out for mercy. So we have to ask ourselves the question, do these things mark us? Do we have persistence in pleading for Jesus despite opposition? When it becomes hard, do we, do we stop calling out for Jesus when others ridicule or tell us otherwise? Do we believe in the biblical Jesus? Or are we making a Jesus up in our own minds, off of opinions of others or how we want Jesus to be? Are we looking to the scriptures to let them define who Jesus is and believing in that Jesus? And lastly, do we understand how badly we need mercy we are sinners. We're like that blind man. This is the type of person that Jesus responds to. How do we know that? Jesus says, call him over. And what I love here is he lets those people, he doesn't go and call him himself. He lets the people go call him. So it's almost like this silent rebuke of these people who just told him to be quiet. He goes, hey guys, you go tell him to come over. Just humbled right there. Man, like I was so wrong. He's, he's listening to this man. Then we see this fourth sign of true faith from this blind man. He jumps up, a blind man jumping up. I've never been blind, but I've closed my eyes for a little while, and it's pretty hard to jump and then walk somewhere. This guy jumps up and goes to Jesus. He didn't just want Jesus to come to him, but he would stumble over to where Jesus was, no matter how ridiculous he looked, to be healed. That is a sign of true faith. How often do we want Jesus to work in our lives? But we're unwilling to take steps to remove ourselves from the mess we're in to run to Jesus when he calls us. We know only Jesus could call us out of that mess, but when he calls us, are we still saying, no, I want to stay here, you come to me? Or are we responding to his call? We have to respond to his call to see that we have true faith. And then we see this familiar question that really sets the contrast here. He says, what do you want me to do for you? Disciple's selfish approach, hey, do for us whatever you want. What do you want me to do for you? The, the, the blind man's humble approach, what do you want me to do for you? We already know Jesus is going to give him what he asks. And then we see this fifth sign of true faith from the blind man. He says, I want to see. He didn't ask for money or for food or to sit at his life left side, but for sight. The blind man knew he was blind. That's the great thing about blind people. They don't think they could see. This blind man knew he was blind and he knew he needed sight. He had to live all of his life on giveaways. He could have asked for other things, material things, but he asked for sight. There was no other option for him. So who is the gospel for? It's for those who cry out for mercy. It's for those who know that they are blind. The gospel's not for those who don't know that they're blind. The mark of a Christian is not sinless perfection, or a cleaned up life, or a perfect understanding of God or the scriptures. It's not a position in the church or a successful family, but a continual realization of how blind we are without Christ, and how badly we need his mercy. We can't look to a certain day when we accepted the Lord as proof that we're a Christian, but a continual lifestyle of repentance and faith and asking for mercy. And how do we know all this is true? Well, let's look at Jesus' response to him. He says, go, your faith has healed you. Jesus grants him his request, and immediately he could see. But what does he tell him healed him? Jesus says, your faith has healed you. His physical eyes were open, which is an amazing miracle. But even bigger miracle, the blind man's salvation. How do we know? How do we know the blind man was saved? Well, let's look at the next text, sentence here. And it's the sixth sign of his true faith he followed jesus immediately he followed jesus a life changed will result in following christ and this blind man specifically was following him to jerusalem where he was going to do what die a changed life results in following jesus so we have this contrast between the disciples who are scared as they follow him and the blind man whose eyes are open, and he's following Jesus. He could have done so many other things now that he has eyes, but he wants to look upon Jesus as he goes with his new eyes. They did not cry out for help like those who Jesus healed because of their faith. Those disciples wanted position and importance. They wanted to be the greatest. They wanted to sit next to Jesus. They wanted to not suffer. But Jesus was the um, awaited Messiah who came not to rule and be served first, but to serve and give his life. As a ransom for many. And that's the Jesus that the blind man was following. The blind man's the one with true faith. And the blind man is an, audience, uh, is an example that Mark's audience should follow. Mark is telling these people in this church that he's writing to follow this blind man, be like him because he knew he needed mercy. So let's wrap this up. Who is the gospel for? The gospel's for those who cry out for mercy. Sometimes the biggest problem with us is not realizing that we're the biggest problem. Our biggest problem is that we are the biggest problem. We need mercy, not position. We are wicked sinners by nature, by choice, and we need mercy. We don't deserve to be in Jesus' kingdom, but we deserve eternal separation. The gospel is for those who cry out for mercy because they know they need it. What else? The gospel is for those who know they are spiritually blind. We bring nothing to the table in our own wisdom. Doesn't matter how we are raised, how much we understand, we are spiritually blind without Christ opening our eyes through his spirit. What else? The gospel is for those who have true faith in Jesus. Faith is a gift, and when that gift is given to us, it causes us to act. If we don't see signs in our lives like this blind man of responding to Jesus' call and following him, we have to question, do we really believe in him? Is he really more important than anything else in this world? What else are we following other than Jesus? And lastly, what changes when we embrace this? When we embrace who the gospel is for, we cry out for mercy, we know we're blind, we have true faith, what changes? Well, first, it changes the way we view Jesus as the merciful king. When we sin, we don't try and hide from him like Adam did in the garden. When we sin, we come to him and say, Jesus, I messed up. I believed a lie. I didn't believe that you could fulfill all, all of my desires. Give me mercy, Jesus. I need forgiveness. Receiving that forgiveness, knowing that it's already there. We come running to him when we sin rather than running away from him. What else does it change? It changes the way we follow Jesus to whatever end. That blind man followed Jesus to his death, for us that means even if it means suffering or embarrassment in this life, we follow Jesus to whatever end. Because he's done a miracle in our lives and nothing can change that. And we know that the worst that could happen to us on this earth does not change our eternal state with him in paradise, with his family. And lastly, it changes the way we view others, especially when they sin against us. When we know how badly we need mercy, it becomes a lot easier to forgive others. It becomes a lot easier not to judge. It allows us to approach the cross together with people. What, the guy who married us, Brent Batiste, is here today at our wedding, had us practice while we were up there. He said, one of the most important things in your wedding is forgiveness. So right now what we're gonna do is, you're gonna repeat after me. Ready, Ron? Sure. Jen, will you forgive me? I'm like, Jen, will you forgive me? She verbalizes yes, and then she does the same thing. When we know how badly we need mercy, it changes the way we view others. We don't hold that sin against them. We're ready to come to our wives, Jen, I need mercy, forgive me. I sinned against you, I sinned against our son. Forgive me, because Jesus has forgiven me. Look at what he's done. We won't hold grudges, we won't get bitter, because we know we're all sinners and we approach the cross together, changes the way we view others. So remember that the gospel is for those who call out for mercy, for those who know that they are blind, and those are the ones who receive sight and gain entrance into heaven. Let's pray together. Lord, thanks for your word that it comes alive through your spirit and that we see the goal isn't gaining wisdom, it's gaining mercy. Your word is a means of grace with which, through which we get to see you more clearly, see our sin more clearly, and receive what you've given us. Your grace is unending. Your mercy is unending. You're slow to anger. You're patient. You're abounding in steadfast love. And that is the God we worship through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Right, let's stand together and let's respond in song of
1: confession and
0: affirmation of our sin and that Christ is merciful to us alone.